Morning, everyone. Ah. Yes, we are. I got a couple of things to talk about, first of all. We're beginning a series uh, on doctrines of the Christian faith. And so you remember we just finished a series in Colossians, and one of the main emphasis through Colossians, which we noticed Paul coming back to again and again, was that we would grow in the knowledge and understanding of God. That was basically his message to the good little church of Colossae. He said, you guys have a good start in the gospel. You've you got good things going on. There's no big problems for me to deal with. So I'm just going to keep telling you, keep growing in the knowledge and the wisdom and the understanding of God. That's, that's your job to do. So that, I thought, hey, for the summer, that's what we should do. We should grow in our knowledge and understanding and the wisdom of God. And so we're doing a series of, of doctrine. And then I thought, doctrine, everybody's going to go, oh, doctrine, that's boring. And I thought, I'll put a hymn with everything. So it's the hymns of doctrine, because the reality is that's what we do. We, we read the Bible, and we let the Bible preach truth to our hearts, but then we also sing hymns, and we sing truth to our hearts, and that's important. So, so this is what we do as Christians, is we preach and we sing hymns and truth and doctrines. That's all doctrine means. It just means truth or theology, which is just knowledge of God. We sing those things to our hearts, and we preach them to ourselves from Scripture. Um, if you have a concise theology book that we picked up with our life groups last, last life group series, the little purple book by J.I. Packer, uh, pages, just 15 pages, pages 20 to 35 would cover the core of the stuff I'm going to talk about today. So if you want to get even more depth, because I'm not going to tell you everything about God in 35 minutes, okay? Um, so if you want to get more depth, you could go to that. Uh, pages 20 to 35 in Concise Theology. And if you are a household here who does not have a concise theology, we want you to have one. And so we've ordered more, and you can contact the office, and we will get you a concise theology so that you can read these truths and these doctrines, just like two pages per truth uh, in that book. And then one final thing before we begin. Uh, Next Saturday, June 11th, my son is marrying Cassidy Mahler, and so he has the distinct pleasure of marrying Cassidy. Cassidy has the something <laughs> of marrying Isaac. I don't know what. We're not getting the psyche val until after the wedding. Um, but But here's the thing. They would love any of you who would like to come to the ceremony. It is outdoors at 4 p.m. 3 p.m. Don't come at 4. You'll be too late. It's a good good thing I didn't show up at 4. So anyway, so at 3 o'clock next Saturday at Pinestone, out front by the pond, bring a lawn chair. Whoever wants to come to see this glorious event, um, then you are welcome as part of the church family to come for sure. Uh, That's just an open invitation uh, for anybody to come to the ceremony at 3 o'clock. Yeah, so now, let's begin on this summer series. And uh, and we're going to dig into, through this series, sort of the top 10 to 12 key doctrines of God in the Christian faith. And uh, you may be shocked and surprised to learn that the first message is going to be on the doctrine of God. And it stands to reason in matters of faith and truth that if we, if we get God wrong, then we will get everything else that follows afterwards wrong. Everything that flows and follows from God will be in error if we don't get God right. And it's not just a theoretical exercise. In fact, 
Many would argue it's probably the most fundamental error in all religious and philosophical and ontological inquiry. And that's just a big word for the thinking of who we are as beings. As humans, we get our values wrong, we get our reasoning wrong, we get our emotions wrong, we get our relationships wrong, we get our whole life off kilter because we've gotten God wrong. And to the degree that we get God right, we get our life back on track. A.W. Tozer famously said, the most important thing about you is what comes into your mind when you think of God. So in other words, when I say God, where does your mind go? What do you think? I'll say it again. So when I, when I say think of God, think of God, Tozer's saying, where does your mind go when you think of God? What do you start thinking about? What categories spring up in your mind to kind of think of the characteristics of God in? What influence does God have in the way you think, in the way you live? What space does he occupy in your thought life? Where do you try to fit God? Can God fit into your life? Your view of God will affect your job, your marriage, how you parent, your friendships, how you spend your time, how you value other people, your approach to your finances, your engagement with culture. Everything, in one way or another, flows out of who is God and and what is God and how how do I think of God. Everything, in one way or another, hinges on our understanding of God. And so that's where we should start our series, is on the doctrine or the truth of God. There is no church, there is no ministry, no Christian, and we would argue no society, no nation, or no culture can rise higher than the height of their thoughts of God. That's our limit. We can never rise higher than how we think of who God is. And conversely, churches, ministries, Christians, nations, cultures will sink as low as their lowest thought of God. As beings created by God for God in order to return to God, everything about our joy and flourishing ultimately flows out of our knowledge of God. And here's the issue, because I can't talk about everything about God, obviously, today, so we're just going to focus on this. A tiny view of God, a small view of God, or a high view of God. That's the fundamental categories that everyone's going to fit in this morning. And many people have cultivated a very tiny view of God in their minds. Some people have a God who does not know for certain if we will choose him and be with him in heaven as if our relationship with him is contingent on us. Some have a God who does not govern human history but is merely an observer who wound up the universe and lets it run and just watches to see what will happen. Some have a God who is powerless to affect any real change in their lives. They feel they are trapped and God cannot fundamentally change the direction of their heart or their mind or their life. Others have a God that doesn't need to make any changes in their lives because he approves of every single lifestyle and behavior they choose. By an amazing coincidence, it's almost as if they worship a copy of themselves because God agrees with everything they think. The anemic, powerless, hand-wringing, desperate-to-approve-and-be-approved God that many people invent in their mind is not a God to be praised, but a God to be pitied. And that's why we need to open up a chapter like Isaiah 40 
and allow it to preach to our hearts and minds the true categories of who God is, the attributes, the character, the nature, the names, the reality of the true and living God. In Scripture, we find the opposite of a tiny God. In Scripture, here is the reality of how big our view of God needs to be. And so it's Isaiah chapter 40 that we're going to be looking at, and we'll work through attributes of God that Isaiah, speaking in the Spirit, led by the Spirit of God, speaking to the people of Israel who are in the middle of turmoil, who are in the middle of practically a civil war, who are on the verge of being carried away into captivity, need to hear who their God is. And let me just pray as we look to Isaiah chapter 40. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for doctrine. We thank you for theology. We thank you for truth. We thank you that by your Holy Spirit, you have given men and women the insight to know your word and to uh, expand on the knowledge of you in ways that are true to your scripture and true to our knowledge of you, that glorify you, that lift you up. And Father, thank you that we can boil our lives down as disciples to simply day by day, month by month, year by year, increasing how highly we view you. If there is one discipleship lesson to take away from today, Lord, if there is anyone that is struggling in their walk, they could just wake up every morning and say, I'm seeking, I'm asking, Lord, show me. Put in practice in my life the ways I can have a higher view of you. And everything else would start to fall into place behind that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Isaiah 40 begins this way. It doesn't begin. In verse 9, the prophet Isaiah says, Go up to a high mountain, O Zion, telling the whole people of Israel. Herald the good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem. Herald of good news. Lift it up. Fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. And so Isaiah is telling God's people, get up on your highest peak in the nation. Get up where you can be seen and you can be heard. And the whole country needs to hear the news you have. Tell all the cities, this is who God is. And then in the following verses of the whole chapter, we have a description, a song even really, not of a tiny God, but of the greatness of God. And this is what the people need to hear at this time. That's why it's to be proclaimed from a mountain. When the church is in a season of weakness and is ineffectual, when it's drifting and the church seems like it's lost its way. When the church is at its lowest point, it's because it has a low view of God. And when a believer like you and I are drifting, when we feel like we are at the lowest point in our spiritual life, when we feel we are drifting and we are weak and we are powerless, it's because we as believers have a low view of God. And so the high view of God must be preached and sung to ourselves if there's to be revival, just as Israel needed it here. If we want to live a higher Christian life, we have to challenge any low view of God that we may be harboring in our minds. And there's five doctrines or truths about God that we can see expounded in these remaining verses of Isaiah 40, and that will adjust our hearts and transform us. And the first one is that the greatness of God is found in his infinite power or the omnipotence of God. Verse 10 says, Behold, the Lord God comes with might. And then in verse 12, we have a series of rhetorical questions whose answers are meant to be obvious. And the questions are this, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? And who has marked off the heavens with a span? Who has enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure? And who has weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? As you can imagine, 
the prophet or the preacher, perhaps literally standing on the side of a mountain in a high place, and he's gesturing at the land of Israel that is spread out before them. And he's saying to the people, who's done all of this? And who is so great that all of this and everything beyond our borders and the whole world and all creation is tiny in comparison? All that encompasses us is tiny to the power of God. All the oceans of the world fit in water that he can hold in the cup of one hand. The whole universe above us is how he measures between his thumb and his little finger. That's all of creation. That's all of the universe. That's all of the galaxies. That's everything. From beginning to end, he fits between his thumb and his little finger. All the dust of the earth fits into one of his measuring cups, one like you might have hanging in your kitchen cupboard. You know, God goes to make a cake, and he goes, what am I going to use? Just all the dust of the earth. I'll put this in my little quarter cup. You know, and that's all the dust of the earth, and he's, you know, making a cake with it. That's God. There is the God who spoke into existence out of nothing. Everything in creation is tiny to him. He takes mountain ranges, and he weighs them on a pair of scales as if they were spices. You know, he's adding to that cake. He's like, I need, you know, a little spice for this, a little cumin or something. I don't know what he's putting in there, but it's the mountain ranges that he has on his kitchen scale. And so the prophet's on the mountain saying, all of this, everything, all of creation is tiny. There's no question of any portion of God's creation ever resisting his omnipotent power. Nothing will stop him. There is no storm, no earthquake, no hurricane, no asteroid impact, no collision of moons or planets, no neutron star, no supernova, no black hole that is more powerful than God. He measures all of those things. He measures millions of black holes between his thumb and his little finger. He's omnipotent. None of them have power to even make his hand itch while he holds them. And the universe is actually smaller than that to God, but Isaiah doesn't want to shock his audience too much, so he says it all fits in his hand. You know, I don't want to freak you out and tell you that God's bigger than that. But in Isaiah's day, as in ours, people need to be reminded of God's omnipotence. In Isaiah's day, the Assyrian Empire was threatening the northern kingdom, and and Babylon would show up shortly to carry the southern kingdom into captivity, and things are going to seem very bleak for Israel. But Isaiah wants them to remember that God is more powerful than Assyria or Babylon. No matter how powerful our enemies may seem, God is far more powerful and will rescue them and will restore them in their season. Their final state is not in the hands of their enemy, but in the hands of God. Because there is no enemy that can thwart God's plans. There's a very common saying, and we've had it for a while, it's better to have small faith in a big God than great faith in a small God. And that's what Isaiah is driving at here. He's saying weak faith weak Israel. He's saying timid Christian. Let your small faith, as small as it is, be in a great God. A pastor at Westminster Chapel, G. Campbell Morgan. He was the minister at Westminster Chapel before Martin Lloyd-Jones. Don't know if you know those names, but great tradition of preaching there. And he preached a prayer. The story goes, after one service, and an elderly lady approached him. He was preaching on prayer and praying to God. And this little old lady asked, she said, Can I pray about the little things in my life, or should I only pray to God about the big, important things? To which Reverend Morgan replied, woman, everything in your life is little to God. Pray about whatever you want. He's bigger than all of it. 
Seems like a callous answer, but it's the reality. There is nothing that we can't take to God that is somehow too big for him. So pray for all of it, big and little. Well, we may ask, what is God doing with all of that power? And we see these in the verses that follow that, secondly, the greatness of God is in his unparalleled wisdom, or what we call his omniscience. It's good that God is powerful, but his power is also applied with perfect wisdom. The rhetorical questions continue in verse 13. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? God cannot learn anything new. God cannot be taught anything. God cannot discover something he does not already know. God can't look into the future and be surprised by some turn of events. There's nothing that's going to change the plan of God because his plan is already perfectly encompassing everything that can possibly be known or happen. He has the knowledge of all things. And Isaiah keeps up this rhetorical style in verse 14. He says, whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the paths of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the ways of understanding? And of course, the rhetorical answer to the rhetorical question is nobody. Nobody can take God to school. Nobody can give him advice. Nobody can teach God what is fair. No one can help God understand things better. God God discerns everything perfectly. He plans everything wisely. No matter how much time we were given, we could never sit down together with all the wisest people on the world for as much time as you want to give them, come up with a plan that is better than God's plan laid out for all of human history, all nations, all people, and for our individual lives. Small God thinkers, though, always believe they can do better. At the scale of the big, there are philosophical thinkers who are certain that they could order the world better. The internet is filled with endless discussions about what a bad job God is doing and how everybody else would do better if they were God that they could give God some pointers on how to run things. They could achieve better justice. They could more rightly conduct the affairs of mankind than God does. So it happens at the big philosophical thinking level, and it happens at the scale of our own individual lives. When we are sure that God is not doing a very good job of delivering what we think is best for us, because we have a really clear plan of what is best for us in our life, and when life doesn't go that way, God has clearly taken his eye off the ball, or he's not, very good at planning our life. He's overlooking something. He's ignoring some piece of data, or he's just being unwise in how he governs our life. And that's small God thinking. But this is what Israel needed to hear 800 years before Jesus comes, that the omnipotent God in his absolute power is also unfolding an absolutely perfect plan of redemption. Not one that we can comprehend but which, person by person, season by season, generation by generation, era era by era, nation by nation, this plan of redemption that God has laid out is fundamentally, absolutely accomplishing his purpose and is absolutely trustworthy. Paul quotes Isaiah here in Romans chapter 11 when he says, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his ways, his judgments, and how unscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? That's the quote from Isaiah there. Peter says essentially the same thing to Jesus when all the small God thinkers turn away from following Jesus because they didn't like his teaching and how he was explaining how this plan of redemption was going to go for them. These so-called disciples left and walked away, and Jesus said to the twelve in John 6, Do you want to go away as well? 
And Simon Peter answered him and he said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. You are the teaching, Jesus. You have the wisdom. You have the knowledge. You have the words of eternal life. There is no other place we could go. What God are we going to go to that is more wise than you? We don't understand it. Peter didn't understand it. The disciples didn't understand it. We see that over and over again. They didn't understand it. But they knew that Jesus had it. So they followed him. So God is great in his power. He's great in his wisdom, in his unfolding of his plan among nations, in all history, among all people. His wisdom is greater than yours. His plan for your life is perfect. Big God thinkers know this and cherish this. And big God thinkers have their hope and their joy and their trust in the knowledge that God is wiser And God is trustworthy in his wisdom and in his power. But then thirdly, Isaiah goes on, and we can see that the greatness of God is found in his immeasurable glory or righteousness or holiness or even perfection. The glory of God is incalculable. God is God because he is wholly other. He is wholly transcendent. He is wholly set apart from all other possible glories. Nothing compares to him. Everything else is imperfection in contrast to God's perfection. And the comparison being made is in verse 15. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastland like fine dust. You see, when the the people of Israel are thinking about glory, they're thinking about the nations around them. They're thinking about the glory of, say, the Egyptian empire or the glory of the Persian empire. Or right now at this time, they're thinking of the glory and the power of the Assyrian empire and the Babylonian empire that are their neighbors and that threaten them. And they see the glory of those nations compared to themselves. The queen right now is entering into her platinum jubilee celebration, which is fantastic, amazing that the queen has reigned for so long. And you, you think of uh, her, the glory of her reign and the pomp and circumstances of her throne and the crown jewels and all of that stuff, all of that glory. And Israel looked in the same way to Egypt and Persia and Assyria. And in fact, Israel is in the problem that they're in right now Because they wanted that kind of glory. If you go back a few hundred years earlier, they looked at the monarchies and the nations around them and they said, God, we want a king of our own. And God said, that's not really the kind of glory that is your glory. You're not my people to have a king to be gloried like the nations are gloried. But go ahead, we'll see how that works out for you. That's not a quote from God, that's me. That's what I would say. You know? So he says, okay, have a king. Have your big palace and all of that stuff and your monarchy and, and try to compete with the glory of the nations around you. But that's not the glory I want for you. I'm your glory. And now God is saying through Isaiah, there is no weight to the glory of the nations. The word in Hebrew used for the glory of God is kavod. But the root meaning for that word is weight. So there's always an association of the weight of God's glory. You've probably heard that phrase. People talk about the weight of God's glory. But here, there is no weight to the glory of the nations. Isaiah says that these nations are like dust. They're a drop of condensation on the side of a bucket. There's no weight to the nations. There's no significance. And we know that Isaiah has shifted to the topic of glory and holiness and worship here because he immediately says in verse 16, as you can see, Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. Israel's talking about worship. He's talking about glory. He says, you could cut down all the forests in Lebanon. Think about all the California redwoods that exist. 
You could cut down all of those redwood forests, and you could round up all the cattle of the nation. Think of the herds of Texas and Kansas. You could get all those redwoods, you could cut down, you could clear-cut the forest of a state, you could take all the cattle, and you could have a burnt offering with all of that, and it still would not compare to the worship that God is owed for his glory. All the nations are as nothing before him. They can be accounted by him as less than nothing. That's, that's negative. Okay, I don't know the history of mathematics and when negative numbers came about, but Isaiah's talking about less than zero. Negative are the nations around God. Now, tiny God thinkers don't think of God this way. For tiny God thinkers, God's glory and holiness and perfection is not something to be in awe of because for tiny God thinkers, it's easy to put God in a box, to put him in his place, to be awed by the achievements of mankind or especially impressed with their own accomplishments. God becomes, to tiny God thinkers, just another option in a list of options, just another therapist in a list of therapists. Just another therapy in how they can have their life improved that help them cope. Faith in God is just another hobby among a list of hobbies. Small God thinkers don't worship God. What they are actually worshiping, Isaiah is going to spell out for us, is just another idol in their household of many idols. If you're a small God thinker, you're not worshiping God. You're worshiping idolatry. He says... To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness will you compare him? So he's pre-stating the question that Tozer asks. What do you think about when you think of God? Who are you comparing him to? What comes to mind when God is considered? And Isaiah answers one of his rhetorical questions finally. He says, an idol. That's what you're thinking about. When you have a small God thinking, you're thinking about idolatry. You're thinking about an idol, some God you've made up. A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it with silver chains. And he who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot, and he seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. The Hebrew word there is actually fall over, topple. It might be a rich man's idol made out of gold and adorned with silver jewelry. You may have constructed for yourself an incredibly sophisticated God in your mind. It could be a gold and silver God that serves your purposes to some great degree in your mind. Or it might be a poor man's idol. You know, a poor guy goes out, tries to find some wood that just won't rot and, you know, carve it in such a way that it doesn't fall over. I like how sarcastic Isaiah is getting here. You know, he's like, you dummies have God in all of his glory to worship and you're just trying to find a piece of wood that doesn't rot too quickly. And you're trying to carve it in a fashion that it doesn't fall over on its own. The dumb things that you worship can't even stand up without your help. That's what you're worshiping, tiny God thinkers. When you've got the omnipotent, omniscient, glorious, holy, perfect God of the universe, and you want this idol that you hope doesn't rot and hope doesn't fall over. But it doesn't matter how pretty you make it or how valuable you try to make it. All idols are poor and helpless in comparison to God. Why do you small God thinkers worship even smaller gods than yourself? You worship money or fame or health or progressive thinking or politics or ultimately just an image of yourself instead of God. Our present-day idolatry is just, idol- just as idolatry did back then, lowers the greatness of God. If we go back to Tozer, he goes on to say... The essence of idolatry is the entertainment or, or speculating of thoughts about God that are unworthy of him. How we need to have 
elevated yet again the escalation of our understanding of the holiness and the sovereignty and the grace of our God. That's idolatry. Idolatry is when we play around with small ideas about God in our mind. Because that's not really God. That's just an image of God we've made up in our head. We have to elevate God from his scripture, from his word, by his spirit to who he actually is. And as compared to our tiny gods, God is glorious. He's holy. He's set apart. He's transcendent. There is no earthly glory of man or nation can compare. We must not entertain any ideas of God nor worship any God that is less than who the great and almighty God is. Immortal, invisible, God only wise. All those verses that we sang, and we're going to sing them again at the end. And after going through this, hopefully we sing them a little differently because we'll see what the hymn writer was writing about. He was writing about God. Two more doctrines quickly from this text. I got started a little late. I blame everybody else, not me. (laughs) Fourthly, we see the greatness of God is found in his irresistible rule or what we call his sovereignty, his omnipotence, his omniscience, his holiness, or his glory, and now his sovereignty. With regard to these lightweight nations that God has been talking about through Isaiah, God rules with absolute authority and what we call sovereignty, which if you want a simpler word is like control. God is in control. He holds all the leashes of these so-called kings and monarchs and presidents and prime ministers or dictators Also, over every power and principality and force of nature or politics or history, he rules over every spiritual power. He rules over every circumstance of life. Verse 21 here in Isaiah 40, which is magnifying God for us so well, lists a bunch more rhetorical questions. Don't you know? You do know. Have you not heard? Yes, you have. Have you not been taught? Yes, you were. Don't you know? This is from the very beginning. Yes, you do know. He lists all those things. And then in verse 22, it goes on. It is he who sits on the throne above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. Notice what Isaiah says here. He says he sits above the circle of the earth. The picture here is of God enthroned. He's talking about ruling. He's talking about control. He's talking about authority. He's talking about sovereignty. God is on a throne sitting above the circle of the earth, and he is exercising his royal prerogatives as the king of all kings. He looks down, and he says, that's a nice throne that you have there, Queen Elizabeth. Very impressive. Have you noticed my throne? Or that's an impressive empire you have there, Elizabeth. All the pink parts of the map, very cute. All of your subjects, though, are like grasshoppers. They are countless as they may appear. They are counted in my empire, as are the citizens of every other empire. All of your empires are just part of my empire. In Revelation chapter 4, the apostle John is given a glimpse into the heavenly places, and and John gets to actually see what Isaiah says here is true. John gets to physically, in a vision, see... And describe for us what small God thinkers need to see and hear to banish away any entertaining of small God thoughts. And this is what John sees in Revelation when the curtains of heaven are peeled back. He says, at once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. And around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on those thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with gold crowns on their heads. 
And so John says, I saw heaven, and heaven is a throne, and it's a throne that is just light. It's just, it's just colors and light, a spectrum of gem-like and rainbow-like light. Immortal, invisible, in light he resides. That's God. And behind, below his throne are 24 other thrones. He's the throne above all thrones. And it goes on. You can read Revelation. And then in Revelation 19, Jesus comes back on the scene. And on his head are many crowns, crowns upon crowns, diadems upon diadems, it tells us in Revelation 19. Authority stacked on top of authority. And he has a name that nobody knows. Meaning that there is no title, there is no name, there is no dynasty, there is no family name that can claim a higher bloodline or power than Jesus. You don't even know his name. You don't even know his true name. That's how high up he is. He's, you know, he's not a Gates or a Musk or a whatever. You know, he's a name above all other names. You don't even know the authority that he has. And whatever you perceive the extent of God's authority and sovereignty to be, it still goes farther than that. Is God in control at my job? Yes, he is. Is God in control in the situations that are going on in my family right now? Yes, certainly he is. Is God in control in the politics of Canada and the USA? Mm, yes. <laughs> if God, is God sovereign over Putin and Russia? He is. Does God have control over COVID and cancer? He does. Is God able to limit the power of Satan and his demons in this world? God is limiting the power of Satan in this world. You don't want to see Satan's power unlimited in this world. You think this is bad. This is Satan on the leash. God is in power and authority. Putin is a kitten compared to Satan, and Satan is only accomplishing what God permits him to accomplish to fulfill his justice and his redemptive plan. Refer back to point two above. God is ruling over all other rulers. Isaiah goes on, Scarcely are they planted, scarcely are they sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither, and the tempest carries them off in stubble. But when Isaiah says here that the nations are nothing and the rulers are stubble and the citizens are grasshoppers, he's only speaking in relation to God's power and greatness and perfection. He does not mean that the nations and the people and the citizens are worthless in value or that they are nothing in meaning. Because all rulers and all citizens and every person is made in the image of God, their creator. And they are all of the same time, at the same time, they're all nothing in power to God, but they are ultimately valuable to their creator. And the greatness of God is known finally in this last point by his inexhaustible goodness to his people, or you could say his grace or his love or his mercy. And so as you think of God in your mind, as Tozer asks you to, you cannot think of all of these other characteristics of God and leave out the reality of his grace and his love and his mercy. The sovereign God is good to give grace and mercy to his people. And Isaiah frames it up for us this way. He says, lift your eyes on high and see who created these things. He who brings them out of their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. He's talking about the heavenly host, the stars. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? See, this is a question Isaiah knows Israel needs answers to. 
And not Israel as a nation, like Israel as in this carpenter and this fisherman and this guy and this girl. They need answers to this question because they're going to ask God as they are carried off into Assyria and Babylon. They're going to ask God, have you forgotten about me? It seems like we are being treated unfairly. Where is your justice? Why don't you know what's going on in my life? And Isaiah's words are, look up at the stars your creator created. He knows every star by name, and they come out and they move in their paths according to his order. So why do you think that God does not have the power to know what's going on in your life or your circumstances? That he's not guiding your life just as he guides the stars? Isaiah goes on, he says, have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth, and he does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He's not going to take a nap. He's not impotent, not unpowerful, not uncaring about what is going on. Maybe you don't understand all of the hows and whys of the circumstances of your life or of the nations, but his wisdom is unsearchable. It's not about your understanding. It's about his power. And it's about his goodness and his mercy. Don't ever imagine that God is too tiny to encompass your life in his grace. And Isaiah concludes, to bring it all down to grace and mercy, he concludes this way. Hey, hey you tiny God thinkers out there who are worried. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. So Isaiah says, know this about God, small God thinkers. He is full of grace and mercy to the weary and to the fainting to the dying, to the impoverished, to those that are asking this very question. The God who is guiding the stars, is he guiding my life? And Isaiah says, wait on him. He will restore you. You will be renewed. You will be rejuvenated. You will be redeemed. You will be returned to a new life that never knows weariness again. Now, it may be in the next life. God does not promise that the circumstances of this world and that his plan of redemption does not involve difficulty. But you will ultimately be restored and ultimately be renewed and ultimately be recovered by the grace and the mercy of God if you wait on him. So how big is your God this morning? That's the question that stands before the church in every generation and stands before every believer. In fact, whether they know it or not, it stands before every human being. What do you think of when you think of God? How your view of God goes, so will go your faith. How your view of God goes, so will go your life. We must not have an image that we carve in our minds of a little God, of a contained God, of a constrained God, of a controllable God. We must strive to know the greatness of and to worship and to sing and to praise and to trust the one true God that Isaiah speaks of here in chapter 40. And so as we grow in our understanding of the awesomeness of our God over the summer, as we do doctrine after doctrine after doctrine, as we grow in our understanding, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ will be strong and rooted and grounded in the times and culture in which we live. We need big God theology today because the world is in desperate need of a big God. All of their tiny gods have been failing for decades. And we just have to open up a newspaper if you still get one of those. 
All you have to do is look, look on the news if you're still watching cable TV. All you got to do is look on your phone, more likely. All you got to do is Google it. And you can see how all the tiny gods are failing our world right now. Our world, our church, and every one of our individual lives needs a big God back again. When it seems we're surrounded by contrary voices and a hostile worldviews and even the threat of persecution in a nation that we are not truly citizens of, we are captives in Babylon, but only for a short time. Then we look to our big God, and we put our faith in God, and we wait on the Lord, and we will gain new strength, and we will be renewed. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. Thank you for Isaiah. Thank you for the preservation of your word for us to learn from. Father, banish from our minds any small God thinking. Never let us try to fit God into our little box or let God just be our therapist or our butler. Oh, tiny God thinking will kill us. So, Father, give us big God thinking again. Let us sing this truth to our hearts. In God's name we pray. Amen.